It was brutal fighting as they tried to force their way through to the Jammer Masjid. Nicholson, as brave as a lion as always, walked calmly down the street waving his sword in the air. Today we're going to explore the battlefields of Old Delhi, the Kashmir Gate, the Jama Masjid, and the narrow streets that proved so deadly for the attacking British soldiers and their allies. So as moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the podcast for people who love British military history and a damn good story. I hope you're enjoying this season about the Indian Mutiny. I know a lot of you are here for the Zulu War coverage, but I also think the Indian Mutiny is a fascinating conflict from around the mid-19th century. Today's episode is actually based on a YouTube video I made, so if you're interested in looking at some of the maps and graphics that I refer to at times, just go to YouTube, look for my channel, Redcoat History, Siege of Delhi, Storming of Delhi. September 1857 and a small British force have been camped outside Delhi since June. Gradually reinforcements have arrived. There's now between 9,000 and 11,000 men, the majority of whom are Sikhs, Gurkhas and Muslims from the northwest frontier. Delhi was the heart of the uprising. It was the capital of the old Mughal Empire and it was here where many of those sepoy regiments had marched to after the mutiny began. So guys, for the background to today's story, you might want to go back to a couple of my previous episodes where you can learn about why the mutiny happened and then what happened in Delhi when it kicked off there, including how the oldest ever Victoria Cross recipient won his award. But for now, let's crack straight on. Attacking Delhi was an intimidating prospect. A river on one side, huge walls with deep ditches and fortified gates all around, well dug in artillery and a highly motivated garrison that numbered up to 30,000 combatants. So how should the attack on the city be executed? Well, this was a job for the senior engineers to work out. Chief amongst them was Richard Baird Smith. He proposed focusing on the north side of the city. The British then worked forward, captured some key positions and moved their artillery batteries closer to the walls. But the British commander General Wilson was very hesitant and unwilling to commit to the assault. It took pressure from his senior officers including Brigadier General John Nicholson to force his hand. So finally Wilson accepted Baird Smith's proposal for the assault. But with one really pathetic proviso that if it failed it was on Baird Smith and not himself. Not really the actions of a leader that. So was the decision to attack the right one? Well, for his opinion, I'm also joined today by Amapol Singh, who's written a book about the battle. I think the decision was taken for him. He was given orders to, to take Delhi as soon as possible. And the British force had already sat outside Delhi for over three months. There was a danger that Punjab would actually rebel itself. A lot of the communities that were helping the British were you know, beginning to realise that, you know, if the British are having problems capturing Delhi, then, you know, why can't we rebel ourselves and, um, you know, regain independence, if you like. So there was this situation where, you know, if Delhi did not fall within a few days, then Punjab would fall as well. And if Punjab fell, then, you know, the whole um, situation was, was, was completely changed. The attack itself was to comprise four assault columns with one in reserve. There was the first column under Brigadier General Nicholson. You will recall from the previous episodes on Delhi that he was the hero of the army, a fire eater who had defeated the rebels at Najafka just days earlier. His 1,000 men were tasked with storming the breach at the Kashmir Bastion. 
The second column, which was commanded by Brigadier William Jones, was to clear the breach at the water tower. While the third column under Colonel Campbell was to flood through the Kashmir Gate as soon as it was blown open by the engineers. The fourth column under Major Reed of the Simor Battalion of the Gurkhas, who we spoke about in an earlier episode, was to operate on the right flank. Its job was to battle through the suburbs and then effect an entrance at the Kabul Gate. The fifth column or reserve column was to wait and be ready to assist wherever required. Each column only numbered about a thousand men. Would that be enough to storm such a big city? The attack was meant to begin at dawn, but it was daylight by the time the columns were in position. Arthur Moffat Lang was a 20-year-old engineer with Nicholson's column. He recalled, First rushed on number three, heads low and stooping forward and running and cheering under showers of grape and musketry. Then came Nicholson, with me and my party of 250 fusiliers with ladders. At the Custom House Road, we turned to the left and made up the glasses to the right face of the bastion. It was most gloriously exciting. The bullets seemed to pass like a hissing sheet of lead over us, and the noise of the cheering was so great that I nearly lost my men, who doubled too far down the road before I could get to them. So they got more fire on the glasses than they needed. The edge of the ditch reached down. We slipped. Just as I slid down on my left, I saw Medley and the 75th beginning to swarm their breach, and on my right I saw a column of smoke ascend and heard the explosion of the blowing in of the Kashmir Gate. The Kashmir Gate was over to Moffat's right. Here the sappers had to lead the way. It's almost impossible to comprehend the bravery of those brave engineers led by Lieutenants Holm and Sackold. They were a mixed bag, both Indian and British, and they came forward nonchalantly under a hail of fire. There was a young subaltern who saw everything that day. His name was Fred Roberts. You may know the name. He went on to become a field marshal. He wrote this about what he witnessed. Number three column had in the meanwhile advanced towards the Kashmir Gate and halted. Lieutenants Holm and Salkold with eight sappers and miners and a bugler of the 52nd foot went forward to blow the gate open. The enemy were apparently so astounded at the audacity of this proceeding that for a minute or two they offered but slight resistance. They soon, however, discovered how small the party was and the object for which it had come, and forthwith opened a deadly fire upon the gallant little band from the top of the gateway from the city wall and through the open wicket. The bridge over the ditch in front of the gateway had been destroyed, and it was with some difficulty that a single beam which remained could be crossed. Home, with the men carrying the powder bags, got over first. As the bags were being attached to the gate, Sergeant Carmichael was killed and Havildar Madhu wounded. The rest then slipped into the ditch to allow the firing party, which had come up under Salkold, to carry out its share of the duty. While endeavouring to fire the charge, Salkold, being shot through the leg and arm, handed the slow match to Corporal Burgess, who fell mortally wounded, but not until he had successfully performed his task. As soon as the explosion had taken place, Bugler Hawthorne sounded the regimental call of the 52nd. So despite those intense casualties, the engineers had done their job. The gate was blown, the bugler sounded the advance, and the storming parties came forward under the arches here. As the third column advanced down these narrow alleyways, they took heavy fire. As you can see, these streets are still narrow now, and they were more narrow then. It was brutal fighting as they tried to force their way through to the Jamma Masjid. Just behind Kashmir Gate is the oldest church in Delhi. It was built by James Skinner fascinating character and I wanted to do an entire film on him and this church and the history of his regiment Skinner's Horse. But it's closed for renovation. So as the fighting raged, things didn't go strictly to plan. It was bitter close quarter fighting, the hardest type. The columns became confused, casualties mounted. 
the fourth column on the right of the assault had been repulsed. Nicholson, realising that the attack was in danger of failing, was determined to maintain the momentum and capture the burned bastion. Nicholson, as brave as a lion as always, walked calmly down the street waving his sword in the air. As he turned back to wave on the rest of the men, he got shot under the armpit. A sergeant nearby caught him and with great effort pulled him to cover nearby. Nicholson wouldn't be moved, insisting he would rather die where he fell. But eventually he relented and Indian bearers were ordered to carry him back to the field hospital, a task that wasn't finished. And so his dooley was abandoned here by the gate, his bearers running off to do some looting while they had the chance. Nicholson was found later, his face a mask of pain. He was discovered by fellow officers a little later and eventually taken to the hospital. But was the attack now doomed to failure? Well, street fighting is always difficult, simply because you have to capture buildings, you have to capture houses. Anyone who's been to India will know that the houses are, are very well built. And of course, while the British troops are trying to break in, you know, you can have sepoys uh, snipers, you know, on the roofs, just taking, you know, pot shots at uh, the British troops and just, 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 just picking them off. So it looked really difficult, and Wilson, in fact, um, wanted to to retire from the city. Um, you know that he thought it, it best to just just come out and just, uh, um, you know, reorganize. But he he asked his officers, he asked Hope Grant, he asked uh, several other officers, and in fact, he asked uh, uh, he sent an officer to ask uh, Nicholson as well what he thought. Uh, should we should we should we pull out or should we stay in the city? And all of them told him, look, we've got to stay in the city. You know, if we start pulling out now, it, it, it'll be a disaster. Young Edward Vibart, a Bengal army subaltern who we met in an earlier episode, was involved in the fighting with the Bengal Fusiliers. And he wrote, We were chiefly engaged in working cautiously through the streets and sapping gradually from house to house, in the course of which we frequently found ourselves on one side of a brick wall with the enemy facing us on the other. The modus operandi was as follows. The engineers would first break through a wall of a house, which we at once proceeded to occupy, and then, carrying sandbags to the top of the roof, would construct a parapet, from behind which a covering fire was kept upon the next house to be taken. Occasionally some awkward street fighting took place amongst the numerous narrow streets and tortuous lanes which abound in the native city of Delhi. Okay guys, I'm just taking a quick moment to interrupt the story and tell you about today's sponsor. It's me! That's right. It would really help the show if you could sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do that, you get a free ebook all about the Anglo-Zulu War written by myself. It's a bloody good read if I do say so myself. Also on my website there, I'm hoping soon there should be t-shirts for sale with some fantastic quotes and images from British military history on. So stay tuned. Keep your eyes peeled for that. All right, guys, let's get back to the story. So one of the biggest problems faced by the British officers was something Wellington and his commanders in the peninsula would certainly know all about. When the, the British broke into the city, uh, they found several large caches of, of drink in, in the city, uh, alcohol. Um, and uh, being, being soldiers, they sort of immediately decided to uh, take advantage. So uh, you had a huge amount of drunkenness, if you like, uh, by the end of the first day. And uh, it's almost a uh, an indication of the, the sort of lack of organized lack of organization of the sepoys you know the fact that they couldn't take advantage of this uh, sort of drunkenness and, and and disorganization in the british ranks despite those horrific first few hours trying to force the walls and the bitter street fighting that followed the british were slowly getting the upper hand the 
resistance of the sepoys almost crumbled after the first day. And, um, you know, somebody compares it to like a balloon being, you know, pricked by a by a pin, if you like, you know. So on the first day, there was a, a very heavy uh, resistance by the sepoys, but they, they lost morale as well very quickly. And um, you had thousands of them streaming outside the, out the city uh, from the south of the city um, after the first day as well. So even though a lot of the sepoy regiments were losing heart and pulling out of Delhi, there was still a lot of hard fighting to be done because there were thousands and thousands of volunteers, mainly Islamic jihadis, who had come to fight their holy war against the British. Hard fights saw the British troops work their way through the city. Eventually they captured the magazine and the Jama Masjid Mosque. The last Mughal king, Bahadur Shah Zafar, the figurehead of the mutineers, finally abandoned the Red Fort and that as well fell to the British. He was later captured and imprisoned. A number of his children were even executed out of hand. And so, on the evening of the 20th of September, the battle for Delhi was over. Modern historians, and I'm thinking especially William Dalrymple here, whose book is excellent, by the way, about the last Mughal king and the Battle of Delhi, they do talk a lot about the British brutality when the city was captured. But how bad was it? I asked Amapol. Well, I think it could have been a lot worse. Uh, Wilson had given orders to uh, prevent any kind of you know atrocities from taking place now that doesn't mean that there wasn't any but it certainly could have been a lot worse a lot of the people had actually managed to make their way out of the city in any case the british were attacking from the north the city gates to the south were open so a lot of people were actually you know fleeing to the south uh, and managing to, to, to flee quite successfully and there was still time for one more tragedy John Nicholson, badly wounded on the 14th, as you'll recall, finally died of his wounds on the 23rd of September. The cemetery, a quick walk from the Kashmir Gate, is still named after Nicholson. It's a little overgrown, but generally is in good condition and well worth a visit if you're in Delhi. So this is Nicholson Christian Cemetery, where John Nicholson himself is buried. From this angle and with the age of the stone, I can't really read the inscription. But I did read that the marble slab over his grave was once a marble seat for the King of Delhi, I believe from his garden. This rather dilapidated grave at the right at the back of the cemetery says it's in the for the sacred memory of Alexander William Murray, Lieutenant 42nd Regiment Bengal Native Light Infantry, and attached during the siege of Delhi to the famous cause of guides, I added the word famous there, who fell whilst encouraging his men to follow his brave example on the 14th of September 1857, I think that says, it's very damaged. So buried somewhere here is a fellow Leicester lad, Victoria Cross winner at the Siege of Delhi, Everard Phillips. The problem is I just can't find his grave. As an aside, Phillips was awarded his VC 50 years after his death. It was awarded for, quote, many gallant deeds which he performed during the Siege of Delhi, during which he was wounded three times. At the assault of that city, he captured the water bastion with a small party of men and was finally killed in the streets of Delhi on the 18th of September. Anyway, back to our story. And with Delhi fallen, was the Indian revolt, was that sepoy mutiny finally looking like it was coming to an end? I don't think so. I think the sepoys uh, had lost the city. Uh, and obviously it was, there was a, um, a huge effect in morale. But you have to remember that the mutiny was sort of pretty widespread thing. And it wasn't just in Delhi, but, you know, all over North and Northwest uh, India. So, and that would carry on right up till, you know, middle of the, the next year. 
So there's a lot of hard fighting still to come. Those sepoys are not beaten. The Indian rebellion, the sepoy mutiny will carry on for a lot longer. So stay with me, be sure to subscribe because in next month's episode, we're going to look now. We're gonna be walking the grounds of the residency. You're gonna see it then and now. All right, guys, I'll see you then.